Good morning. Well, we're going to continue in the book of uh, James this morning. It's going to be page 980 on your pew Bibles. And uh, I've got a lot of thoughts on James. Luckily, I've got two sermons I got this week and next week. So I have to get all my thoughts out in that amount of time. Um, but I, I think what you'll start to see as we go through it is that it's not really like any other book that we have in the New Testament. It reminds us of some books we have in the Old Testament, uh, especially the Proverbs and other wisdom literature, Ecclesiastes. Uh, but it's not quite like anything in the New Testament. In fact, uh, the great reformer Martin Luther, when he uh, was reading the New Testament for the first time, got to the book of James, and it completely broke his theology. And he called it an epistle of straw. I don't know what the German for that is, but it's an epistle of straw. And he wanted to throw it out of the New Testament. Uh, now, we all know that when we don't like what a book says, we can't just throw it out of the Bible, right? It's, I hear people laughing, but I don't hear anyone agreeing. We all know that, right? Okay. Laughing and agreeing aren't the same thing. Uh, but <clears throat> as I was thinking about the text this morning, it's about favoritism and how to be good toward all. And we're trying to talk about how to live the good life and not the good life as defined by whatever you may see on TV or in a magazine, but the good life according to God. And then James dives straight into this really particular example that seems like kind of a small thing. And as I was thinking about it, I was watching uh, basketball yesterday. I don't know. Is anyone watching March Madness? It's, oh, yeah. Okay. Good. Uh, so I played basketball as a kid. How many people played basketball, played with a basketball at some stage in their life? On a team, you know, pick up after school? Okay. So here's what we would do in elementary school. Our coach would come in and would find us practicing half-court shots and... Um, then he would, you know, round us up and try to get us to do some drills to learn how to rebound properly and maybe dribble and a couple other things that we were completely not interested in. And as soon as he would step out to get a drink of water, go to the bathroom, he'd come back and we're launching half-court shots again. And the idea is we've seen some highlight reels, and I've even seen somebody win a college scholarship by making a half-court shot. Uh, it's like the halftime contest. But the thing is, he wanted us to practice the fundamentals. He wanted us to get the little things right, and we wanted to get the big glory moments right. That's that's the fundamental difference in our approaches to basketball, which is why I did not play basketball very long. And there's a famous quote that most coaches will remind you of, and uh, here it is. It's anonymous, by the way. It's, if you don't think, if you think the small things don't matter, think of the last game you lost by one point. If you think the small things don't matter, think of the last time you lost by, or maybe we should say one basket, two or three points. And for the most part, having more practice at a half-court shot is not the difference between winning and losing, but you know, learning how to rebound, not turning the ball over, bouncing it off your own foot. Those are the things that really add up. But here's the problem. What he did was he wanted to give me these fundamentals that would make me an all-around good player, and I just wanted to look like a good player. I didn't want to become a good player and become a better player. I wanted to look like one. And here's the trick for us in the Christian life. It is very tempting for us. We like to flaunt our good works in a big and grandstanding way while we ignore 
the little things that we consider to be small misdeeds. They're too small to notice, too small to worry about, too small to get right because we're going to make the spiritual half-court shot with a big audience and the crowd goes wild. And so we want to get those moments. And so some of us even structure our religious life in such a way that our best, biggest deeds can be seen and our little things never get cleaned up. But the idea that James is going to give us this morning is that true religion shows itself in the little things. And so with that in mind, I'm going to invite you to turn to James chapter 2. I'm actually going to start us in 126. And I'll uh, read it to you. It'll be on the screens. But uh, just briefly join me in prayer as we get ready to read God's word. Father God, we thank you for the gift of your word. We uh, just pray that you would give us uh, the wisdom that it offers, uh, that you would give us the grace to hear and receive it, uh, and that you would uh, apply it to our hearts in ways that we can't even begin to dream or imagine yet. We ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So starting in chapter 1, verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Chapter 2. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, And if you pay attention to the one wearing fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in their faith and heirs to the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are are not the rich ones... Uh, Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he, he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Now there's a lot in there. And... I'm not going to be able to say everything about everything, but what we're going to talk about this morning is this idea of the translation I'm using uses the word partiality. You may have the word favoritism. You may have heard it uh, a couple different ways, but it's all the same idea here. And in fact, um, it's it's a uh, Hebrew word that they ported over to the Greek that literally means to receive one's face. So it's uh, whatever it means to be receiving one person while not receiving another person, favoritism, partiality, um, that is what is being preached against here. And so he makes this broad sweeping statement. He says, this is what makes religion good and pure, and this is what makes it unpure. Now, if somebody rich comes into your 
he does he doesn't say it's a worship service. It just says you're gathering. So anytime Christians are to gather, you have a rich person come in, you have a poor person come in, and you go to the rich person and you say, here you have the good seat, the poor person sit at my feet. Uh, that's how concrete he gets immediately. And some people have said, why does he start with such a small, trivial example? Giving the rich person the nicer seat or giving the poor person the poor seat is not going to change the world. It's not going to uh, convince or persuade people of Christianity. It's not one of those, you know, really contagious things that people are just going to see and be in awe of, but it's this little thing. But we're going to get to that, and we're going to get to it in the light of chapter 1. So in chapter 1, verses uh, 26 to 27, he gives the three marks of what he calls true religion, and they actually govern the rest of the book. Everything else you read in the book will be governed by this criteria. He says the three marks of true religion are this. One, true religion bridles the tongue. So you keep your speech under control. And that's seven examples in this book. And the the biggest, longest one that we're familiar with will be next week on taming the tongue. So one, mark of true religion is you, you bridle the tongue. The second is this. True religion visits the widows and the orphans. Now, that's familiar language for those of you who have read the Old Testament. Uh, and in fact, the widows and orphans are just frequently a way to symbolize caring for the poor. Now, those were two really common scenarios in the first century wherein poverty would befall someone. The whole family structure falls apart if the parents are gone or if the husband dies uh, and there's no way to make money, no way to put food on the table. Then uh, the church is given the care for them. And we'll get to this a little later when we talk about it, but the idea is that we sustain the widows and orphans and aliens because God does this. And when you think back to the Old Testament, how many of you were reading, at least in some part, the book of Exodus with the Gospel Project? If you attended this church, you heard some of it. So, um, But the idea here is that God delivered his people from Egypt, from bondage, from slavery. They had nothing they could do to pay him back they had He had no reason to do that other than his own goodness, but he did it. And then all throughout the Old Testament, when he says, you know, there are foreigners, there are aliens, there's sojourners in your land, you should care for them because, and this is the key, because I cared for you when you were foreigners, when you were aliens, when you were sojourners in another land. And so God is simply asking us to imitate his own behavior. And so, one, true religion bridles the tongue. Two, true religion cares for the poor. And three, true religion is unstained by the world. Now, this is really easy to get into a slippery slope here uh, where we are tempted to withdraw from the world because of that command. But James advocates for separation within the world, not separation from the world. And so that's a big difference, and uh, some of you have heard other ways of saying that. But we're not to build holy colonies where we only interact with those who agree with us, but rather we are to secure, to be secure in our identity in Christ so that we can go interact with the world from that foundation uh, and not be stained by the world. And so true religion, uh, and by the way, uh, depending on which generation you're in, I go through the Christian bestseller lists every once in a while, and I've noticed that religion has only been used in the titles of books in a negative way for the last five to ten years or so. It's, you know, Jesus instead of religion, and 
you know, Christianity, moving past religion, and all these other things. So I just want you to know, uh, James is not writing with a 21st century Christian bestseller mindset here. He's using religion in a very different sense, and but he even he sees that religion can have a negative connotation, which is why he's putting the word true in front of it. So he's saying true religion does these three things, has these three marks. And so as we get into the text, starting in verse 1, now if I were to give you the most literal translation from the Greek, that doesn't mean the best translation, it just means the most literal, moving words over, it reads like this. Do not hold faith in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ with favoritism. So that's a command. It's an imperative. Don't don't bother holding faith in Jesus if you're going to do so with favoritism in your heart. And the way it reads in my translations, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And in uh, the NRSV, which is our pew Bible, they have yet another way of saying it. They kind of pose it like a rhetorical question, like, is this even possible to do? And those are all good ways to say it. But the big idea here is James sees this as a linchpin of Christianity. This is, if you take out, if you add favoritism or withdrawal impartiality, however you want to see it, then Christianity doesn't work. You don't have faith in Jesus because you are acting in such a way that says you can't know Jesus if you approach other people this way because this is not how Jesus approached you. And then he dives straight into his, his example. He says, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in the good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there, or you sit at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And so, this is the uh, the example he uses, and in it you see people using their tongues, which is the way of saying using their speech, using their language, to shame and humiliate the poor person while flattering the rich person. And he goes on to say in 5 through uh, 13 that if we act this way, then we have broken God's law in, in our failure to love our neighbors as ourselves. And he makes the point that if you've broken one part of God's law, you're guilty as if you've broken all parts of God's law. So we don't get to pick and choose which commandments of God's we follow we have to follow them all and so he picks this smallest thing that almost everyone is guilty of on a regular basis and says here's how you failed it and so if we break part of god's law we're guilty as if we've broken all of it and this is this is the thing about the topic of favorism uh, favoritism favoritism may seem like a small thing because it's frequently it's so implicit and it's so insidious it creeps up on you without realizing and it happens so acceptably, so frequently in human society. It's hard to stay aware of it unless, and it's a big unless, it's hard to stay aware of seeing favoritism unless you're on the negative receiving end of it. Then you can recognize favoritism. When you're the one being passed over because of someone else's favoritism, it's very easy to see. When you're the one dishing it out, sometimes it's very hard to see. And so most of us will be tempted to think, uh, only of the ways in which we've been on the wrong end of favoritism. But what James is encouraging you to do is to recognize your own culpability here. And so instead of saying, here are the ways that I've been wronged by other people's favoritism, you have to examine the ways that you have affected others with favoritism. And <clears throat> there's a, a term for this. In fact, 
there's even a field of uh, psychology now that's dedicated to what's called implicit bias or unconscious bias. In this field, uh, implicit biases are defined as uh, biases that are learned stereotypes that are automatic, unintentional, deeply ingrained, universal, and able to influence behavior. And the point of this field of study is to reveal these levels of discrimination that are they are too subtle for our conscious mind. If you caught someone doing it, you could catch them and say, you just did this, and they'd say, no, I didn't. And that's how subtle they can be. But the goal of this field is to find ways to unearth it, let people see it, and then find ways to combat it. And the simplest example, now, if you go Google examples of it, you'll find plenty. This is the simplest, least painful one I can give you. Um, and some of them are excruciatingly painful, but they're worth looking into because of James' command here. But they say, if you're ever in a situation where you are hiring someone for a job, you're conducting job interviews, you are most likely to hire someone who reminds you of a person that you know. Now, so if you say, you know, that person just sat across the table from me, they remind me of this guy, Steve. Steve's a great guy you are now much more likely to hire that person, even if Steve wouldn't really be good for the job. But the fact that he reminded you, this subconsciously, you're like, oh, familiarity is comfortable, and I want to feel comfortable, I want to feel happy, so I'm going to pick whatever is most familiar. And they also said, you know, if you want to look at uh, implicit bias, look at, uh, you know, the spouse you chose, the three best friends you have, their similar economic, socioeconomic backgrounds, usually similar ethnic backgrounds, and they said all of these are in some way implicit choices, and then <clears throat> when you have to go make a hiring decision and you're basing it on the familiarity of people, you see how it perpetuates these little small acts. And so that's, that's the field of uh, social psychology, which is not what I'm preaching about, but that's just an example to say how how easily favoritism can slide into our thinking and so seemingly innocent, yet this is where James decides to pick his battle. And so I think, you know, commentators were scratching their heads saying, well, why would he pick such a small area to hone in on? There are so many big issues to deal with in the church and in Christian behavior, so many ways people fail to live Christ's law to love God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and in love when uh, each other is ourselves. But I think it's actually because it's so small that he picked it. Because he's picked this, most of us have figured out already how to make a good display of our faith. We can make lofty speeches or Facebook posts. We can go to church every week. We can even give our time and money. And these are uh, good things, but they're all public. They're all visible things that if we ask someone else, they would say, you're living the Christian life well. But when we ask James, he says, if you fail at the small things, then you've missed the gospel. If you missed at the small things that no one notices, no one sees, uh, and sometimes you're not even aware of what goes on in your own heart, then you've really failed to apply the gospel to all of life. And so the reason favoritism is being picked on here is that James 1 gives us the three tests of true religion and favoritism fails all three. First, true religion bridles the tongue. Favoritism does not. Now, even his little example, favoritism, the tongue is used to abuse the poor. Favoritism uses the tongue uh, to lie to God 
because we claim to participate in his grace and his character while our actions depart from where his heart is. So do you see how we're misusing our speech, misusing our language? We say one thing. We say, God, I recognize that I'm a sinner and that you have been gracious to me, so I am going to be gracious to others, and then we're not. So we're lying in terms of what we uh, proclaim, what we say we believe. Uh, and in this example, the tongue is being used to humiliate and shame the poor person. A poor person comes into your assembly and you say, oh, no, you're not sitting in that seat. You can sit at my feet if you'd like to. And now you've used your, your language, your speech for wickedness. And there are 300-plus commands in Scripture about caring for the poor. And so in James's mind, and I'm inclined to agree, you cannot love God with our mouth while blatantly disregarding uh, who he is and how he would have you live with your life. In fact, most of us are hypocrites with our tongues every week, uh, just in the songs and hymns that we sing. You know, in our hymns, we, uh, we have this aspirational side of saying, you know, we love God with our whole heart and we, uh, we are this and we're gonna be his people and we're gonna be united and undivided. And then throughout the rest of the week, we don't live up to the own, the words that we sing. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't sing those words. In fact, what James is saying is that we should try to live into those words, and that's actually one of the hopes of Christian worship is by singing about God's character, about God's goodness, it just starts to imprint on you. You start to pick that up and carry it with you uh, even when you leave here. And I always remind our lead worshipers and our uh, choir director that most people, if, if you're lucky, most people can remember one line from the sermon by the end of the day, Sunday, and most people will be humming a song from church by Tuesday or Wednesday afternoon. So the theology in those hummings need to be really good because that's actually what ends up sticking with people a lot more often. And so uh, we need to be really careful about the words we sing because they form us. So one, favoritism fails the first test of true religion in that it does not bridle the tongue. Secondly, true religion uh, honors and cares for the widows and the orphans. Favoritism disrespects and alienates the poor. See how that's the complete opposite of what he said? So this is becoming now a big deal. This favoritism, which seems like a little thing at first, has now broken the first rule of true religion. Now it's broken the second guideline for true religion. And so mankind by nature, and you can go read the news anytime you want, mankind by nature exploits the defenseless, whereas the theme throughout Scripture is that God protects the defenseless. So caring for the poor is an act of kindness. And so here's, and this is the important thing to remember. When God commands us to care for the poor, it's, it is acting like God. It's imitating his character in one of the most positive ways because it is kindness for the sake of kindness. It is mercy for the sake of mercy. You are doing an act of kindness for someone and you have no reasonable expectation that they will ever be able to do anything back for you. You have no expectation that people will even see your good work uh, or that they'll even feel gratitude for it. You're just being merciful for the sake of being merciful. And that is what we see God doing throughout scripture. And so you're helping someone with no realistic expectation they ever can return the favor. And that's why caring for the poor, caring for the orphans, caring for the widows 
is considered a mark of true religion because it is imitating God's character so closely, and it's what God has shown himself to be. And so this is how God acts towards each of us, and there's nothing he needs from us, any of us, and there's nothing we can give to him that he doesn't already have, yet he is gracious, kind, merciful, and cares for our every need. And so that is how we are to behave toward people who cannot pay us back, cannot give us the gratitude we feel we deserve. And so the the way that you fail this aspect of true religion is when you fail to see your own dependence on God's mercy, it's the quickest way to think that what you have is based on what you deserve and thus seeing others the same way. That's the easiest way to deal with poverty is thinking, well, I deserve everything I have because of what I've done, what my hands have done, therefore they must deserve only what they have. And that kind of thinking fails to see your own dependency on God's grace. And this thinking is demonstrably true and can never lead to genuine care and mercy. So you will never be able to offer genuine care, genuine mercy, genuine kindness toward other people unless it's rooted in this godly character of seeing that God has done this for me, so how could I do anything other than do this towards others? And so that's the second uh, second failure of true religion, and now the third one. The third test of true religion is to remain unstained by the world. But favoritism is entirely worldly criteria. It is worldly through and through. You do not learn this type of favoritism in James 2 from anywhere in Scripture. You can't connect it. It's never prescribed. It's never even hinted at. The only place you can learn that from is the world. And so if you're applying this type of favoritism within your Christian assembly, whether that's your worship service or your small group or even how you open up your home to others, that's not something you learned from Jesus. In fact, it's the opposite of what Jesus demonstrates. And so while true religion is not stained by the world, favoritism wholeheartedly embraces worldly criteria. The world establishes people's value based on external appearance, wealth, family of origin, country of origin, uh, ethnic background, any other criteria we can use to separate ourselves, we tend to take. That's just how the world works, but that is not how Christ's church is designed to work, and that is not how Christ himself built his church. And you may even remember in the in 1 Samuel 16, God says it this way, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now the problem is, that's a great saying. Man looks on outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. The problem is, none of us are ever able to look at another person and assess their character. We're never able to look at someone else by any external sign, any form of appearance, and know where their heart is. Only God can do that, and that's why it's very clear in this passage that only God is the right judge over people. We are not uh, put in that position to be judges over others. And so here's the question for you today. Does anywhere in this passage, does it make you kind of squirm? Does it make you want to tune out and say, I don't really like that passage. Maybe Martin Luther is on to something. We ought to just pull this out of the Bible and, you know, go back to, uh, you know, the passages that seem like free and easy grace. Well, if it makes you squirm, here's the good news. It's supposed to. It's supposed to humble you 
Because what I just said is all three of those tests of true religion that are failed, they're all rooted in God's character and who God is. And all of our acts of mercy, all of our acts of kindness, all of our motivation for not acting on favoritism is based on God's character. God has not done that. So we must be humbled. We must see our own dependence on God's mercy and grace and goodness in order to be able to serve others in that way. And so many of us are tempted to think of ways that... Now, this is here's the warning. If you're listening to this sermon and you think, well, I do plenty of good things. I help the poor. You're going to be tempted to start thinking, okay, let me now think of ways that I can make my work more visible to others to prove to others that I am upholding this law. You feel this tendency and this defensiveness to say, um, but here's the thing. Your energy is better spent on thinking ways to keep this law better rather than thinking of ways to make it more visible to others. And so all of your schemes to fail if the goal is to impress other people. That's not what James calls true religion. If the goals of your behavior, what motivates you to start doing what's right, to start caring for the poor, is to be seen by others and to make that impression on others, it's going to fail. You don't have a chance of succeeding because the only motivation that ultimately serves the poor well is our love of God. If we serve only to be seen, then our loyalty to God's law, namely caring for the poor, not showing favoritism, uh, and so if we only uh, serve to be seen, then our loyalty to God's law will only be as deep as it can be seen by others. I'll say that again. If we serve God only to be seen by others, then our loyalty to God's commands will only be as deep as our actions are visible to others. And so if we keep thinking of all our works uh, in secret so that we can... Uh, but as, So here's the other way to do it. So some of you may be thinking, okay, well, I do plenty of good things. I just have to find a way to make other people see them. And some of you may be saying, well, I don't, I don't really care if people see them. Uh, because I'm going to keep all of these to myself. I'm going to keep them as a secret so that I can quietly feel holier than everyone around me. You're still missing the point. You still aren't getting, you're still not being humbled. You're still not being called back to your own dependence on God's character and goodness. And so here are all the wrong ways to serve the poor. You didn't think you were going to hear that sermon this morning, right? Here are all the wrong ways to go about acts of mercy and kindness, but here we are. And so God acts, uh, God acts this way. He acts mercifully. He acts gracious. He acts kindly because it is his character to be this way. And until we align with that, we will never find the right way to interact with or apply God's law. It's only once we've seen the grace of Jesus Christ, we've seen our own need for him that we will start aligning ourselves and so as we close, I'm going to leave you with the challenge here, one, of upholding true religion, two, of starting to find ways to recognize the accidental or even intentional favoritism in your life and work on it, fix it, weed it out, mortify it, but not because you'll look bad in front of other people. Do it because you love God and God does not treat you that way. But I'm going to end here with a quote from... Uh, it's a Dr. Dan Doriani, who's a former professor of mine, but he also wrote a fantastic commentary on James. And he sums up this section this way. He says, 
When we love and receive all kinds of people, it shows that God's ways are becoming our ways. For God loves the poor. We emulate God's character and obey his will when we refuse to play favorites. Will you please join me in prayer?